Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons and his call-up of reservists, a move he was reluctant to make that has prompted an exodus of draftees to escape Russia. And speak with Christopher Shivas, a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. With more than two decades of experience working on U.S. foreign policy and national security challenges, he previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as the United States National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. We will discuss his article at The Guardian, Yes, Putin Might Use Nuclear Weapons, We Need to Plan for Scenarios. Then, with an independent commission reporting to the United Nations Human Rights Council following the unearthing of mass graves that the Russian military is responsible for hideous crimes against civilians, in particular children, we will speak with Aram Shabanian, the open-source information-gathering manager at New Lines magazine. He recently taught non-proliferation and terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. We'll discuss his new report at New Lines magazine, an independent legal analysis of the Russian Federation's breaches of the Genocide Convention and the duty to prevent. Then finally, we'll assess the possibility that a revolution is underway in Iran that could topple the corrupt and hypocritical clerical regime of Ayatollahs who are essentially an economic mafia using religious piety as a weapon of repression. Joining us is Roya Hakakian, an Iranian-American poet, journalist, writer and television producer for programs like 60 Minutes. Her books include Journey from the Land of No, A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious, and Assassins of the Turquoise Palace, a non-fiction account of the Mykonos restaurant assassinations of Iranian opposition leaders in Berlin. She was a founding member of the Iranian Human Rights Documentation Center, serves on the board of Refugees International, and teaches writing at Yale. We'll discuss her article at The Atlantic, The Bonfire of the Headscarves. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Christopher Shivers, who's a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, with more than two decades of experience working on U.S. foreign policy and national security challenges. He previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as the U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. And he has an article at The Guardian, Yes, Putin Might Use Nuclear Weapons, We Need to Plan for Scenarios. Welcome to Background Briefing. Christopher Shivers. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And in a national address a few days ago, President Putin said that Russia had various weapons of destruction and would use all means available to us. And then he went on to say, 
I'm not bluffing. And this has prompted Joseph Borrell, the EU's foreign policy chief, to say that the war in Ukraine has reached a dangerous moment. And when people say it's not a bluff, you have to take them seriously. So your article indicates that we have to take this seriously and plan for it. But what can we do? Let me just start by saying that uh, President Putin's uh, implied threat to use nuclear weapons is is utterly irresponsible and deplorable. Um, It's the kind of behavior, unfortunately, that we have seen again and again from uh, the Russian president. um, And it should uh, give everyone pause uh, for and, and cause for concern. The, the, the challenge, I think, when it comes to thinking about Putin and the use of nuclear weapons is that there are a, a lot of people in Western capitals who, because uh, Putin has been so distrustful in the past, uh, have a tendency to discount it when he threatens to use nuclear weapons. And the problem is, is that just because Putin says it and Putin has a penchant for lying, doesn't mean that it won't actually happen. Um, you know, when you think through uh, a range of different scenarios uh, that could play out on the ground in Ukraine, uh, there are certainly scenarios in which um, it would be uh, um, imaginable that he could, as a last resort, uh, or in order to defend his regime, make use of nuclear weapons. I think one of the things that, that sometimes is lost in the conversation is that people assume two things. One, they assume that using a nuclear weapon means shooting a large intercontinental ballistic missile uh, at the United States, and that's not the case. There are many uh, smaller uses of nuclear weapons that he has at his disposal. Those would also be very grave, but he wouldn't have to go directly to an attack on the United States. The second mistake that people make is that they assume that he would use nuclear weapons for military purposes. In other words, in order to change the the military situation on the battlefield in Ukraine. And what people uh, who view this the way that I do think is that actually he would be using nuclear weapons for political purposes in order to raise the stakes of the war uh, and to force uh, the the West and the United States in particular to reconsider its, its position and its support to the Ukrainians. Would this involve then using a tactical weapon on the leadership in Kyiv? Uh, that would be, uh, I, I wouldn't rule it out, but I think more likely what you would see is, uh, it, and it's impossible to predict, of course, um, but I think probably something uh, somewhat further down the, the escalation ladder than that would be a probable first step. I think you would see the use of a, a a tactical nuclear weapon, probably against a military target, but not necessarily for military purposes. So if you understand what I mean, uh, when I said that um, he would use the, the, the nuclear weapon for political purposes, but he might still strike a, a military target. And that's where people, I think, tend to get a little bit confused in their thinking about the likelihood, because they dismiss the military utility of a tactical nuclear weapon in this war. And I agree with that. Uh, but what they miss is that he would be using it for for strategic or or political purposes. Well, we haven't had a nuclear weapon used in anger since Nagasaki, and there is this nuclear taboo. And you mentioned in your article that the Guardian, Christopher Shivers, yes, Putin might use nuclear weapons. We need to plan for scenarios that 
the nuclear taboo is broken and with it the possibility that other despots use nuclear weapons in the future is much higher. It's also probably would make Putin a complete pariah and, and even in the eyes of the Chinese. So do you think that comes into his calculus? Well, I really hope it does. I mean, I think one of the best things that we can do in order to try to deter him from using a nuclear weapon is to build an international coalition above all that includes the Chinese um, that uh, to the to the extent possible threatens uh, severe consequences in advance, starting right now, uh, if he does actually go down that road. The, the Chinese are absolutely essential uh, in this equation. Uh, and my hope is that the White House uh, and other NATO capitals have been reaching out to them and using uh, everything that we can, carrots as well as sticks, uh, in order to try to, to get them to speak out uh, and take a position against the use of, of nuclear weapons in this, in this conflict. Whether or not they'll do it, I, I don't know. Um, surely uh, China's views on Ukraine are, are, are complicated because they see it through the lens of uh, their own ambitions with regard to Taiwan, but they must understand that the use of a nuclear weapon, uh, even in Europe, and even if it's ultimately contained, that there is no nuclear escalation, would still rattle global markets. Uh, it would have far-reaching consequences for their own security and their own economic future. They have every reason uh, to try to, to try to stop this. So it's a reasonable assumption, isn't it, Christopher Shivas, that China is about the only country that Putin would listen to. I don't think he would listen to the to India, even though India has apparently expressed concern about the war in Ukraine. Uh, I think China is certainly at the top of the list. Um, I, I think it is helpful that that India has expressed some some concern over the course of the last week about the war. Uh, but yes, I agree. Ch China is the is the is is where Putin has placed his bets. So if if they're willing to 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 come out and say uh, something uh, strong against the, the possibility of using a nuclear weapon, uh, that would certainly be, be very beneficial. So what do you think the U.S. would have to do to get China on board? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know right now. I mean, obviously, our own relationship with, with China has been increasingly tense uh, over, the, over the course of the last few years for a range of reasons. Uh, and we've seen in the last few months uh, statements by President Biden that seem to depart from America's traditional ambiguity about whether or not it would use uh, military force in order to defend Taiwan. So, you know, one possibility is uh, that the United States, or at least the president, offers to, to back off of making those statements. Um, I, I doubt that's going to happen. And I hope uh, that there are other things that uh, that we can offer behind the scenes in order to uh, not not only provide China with incentives to, to speak out, but also to uh, convince them uh, that if Putin were to use a nuclear weapon, um, it, it would be very very bad for their own for their own uh, internal stability and for their own future uh, as a as a nation. So, in terms of what Putin is doing in Ukraine with the annexation of Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. He's obviously getting to a point now where he, he may well say that now this territory is part of Russia and any attack from Ukraine or NATO, because he makes the case to the Russian people that they're not fighting the Ukrainians, they're fighting NATO. Do you think he's going to go that far and say, if you attack the new Russian territory, you're attacking Russia? 
I think that he, he effectively already has, and I think that that is the, the gambit that he has, is playing in this case. Annexing the territories allows him to make a somewhat stronger case to his population that they need to be defended. I don't know how much his population will believe it, but it does allow him to make a stronger case for the mobilization that he is undertaking. Um, and also from the perspective of, of NATO and the rest of the world, it makes it a little bit more convincing that he might use a nuclear weapon in order to defend them in the event that Ukraine uh, continues its uh, the offensive that it has uh, been fighting over the course of the last few weeks. An offensive, by the way, that has been very successful um, and obviously is a factor uh, in his decision to escalate in the way that he has this past week. But his mobilization of 25 million reservists. That's anybody that's done compulsory military service for the last decade or two. He's focusing on the countryside, on the ethnic minorities, not so much St. Petersburg and Moscow, but you've seen exoduses of cars and planes out of the country. He's losing a generation of probably some of Russia's most talented people if they haven't already left. Is it possible that that's where his Achilles heel is? He was obviously reluctant to do this, and he was pushed into it, I think, on the right by the nationalists and the military bloggers and those that, that have been basically arguing that he's got to take the gloves off and stop fighting with one hand tied behind your back. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think that every step that Putin takes closer to or, or, or up the escalation ladder, he is tying his own fate even more closely to this crazy project. And that is reason for concern. I mean, each of these escalations, he's doubling down, not only uh, in terms of Russia's future, but also in terms of his own political future. And the, the problem is, is that he's now cornered. And, uh, you know, it, it is it is very possible that if this uh, operation, this invasion of Ukraine were to fail, he would go down with it. So he has every reason now. Uh, to take very extreme measures in order to ensure at least some degree of success so that he can walk away uh, and make at least a, a, a semi-credible claim to have achieved what he, uh, what he set out to achieve, because the costs already have mounted. Uh, you've mentioned the, they've already mounted to such an extraordinary level for Russia. Uh, you've mentioned the exodus of people, but obviously we have extraordinarily far-reaching sanctions uh, and the, the fact that Russia will already be viewed as a pariah for, for many years to come. So the costs on, on his nation are enormous, uh, and he really, really needs something to show for that. Well, indeed, the, um, what's being revealed in Izium as they dig up these 400-plus graves is children have been raped and um, men have had their genitals cut off. It's just appalling what it's the horrific. Russian military has been doing throughout this whole war. And... They're obviously recruiting people out of prisons. So I don't see how this broken military system of, of the Russians can absorb the 300,000. It's probably more than 300,000, given that they're a pool of 25 million. There are enormous questions about how effective uh, the forces that will now be uh, you know, sent to the, to the front lines are going to be. They have, you know, almost no, they will have almost no training. Uh, their equipment will be uh, in, in very bad shape, already is in very bad shape. So the, the strategy here appears to be simply to overwhelm 
through sheer sheer numbers. And Russia has used this strategy historically. And usually what it means is that a, a large number of Russians are, are likely to die. But now, since he's annexed these territories, he can at least try to make the claim that they are dying for Russia. Um, and of course, the more that the United States and NATO get um, uh, you know, involved on the Ukrainian side, the easier it is for him to make the case that they are, in fact, dying for Russia because uh, NATO and its proxy Ukraine are trying to to take Russian territory. That's the narrative that he is trying to build. And he needs to build it for exactly the reasons that you set out, which are that uh, these these new forces are, are, are very unlikely to be at all effective uh, on the battlefield. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Christopher Shivas, at the United Nations and before the Security Council, Secretary of State Blinken excoriated Russia. And of course, the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov didn't show up, I guess, in anticipation of this. And Blinken made the case that if Russia were to stop fighting, the war would end. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine would end. Do you think people in the West and NATO countries and in the United States get that simple equation? You know, I'm not sure that I get that simple equation with the utmost respect for the U.S. Secretary of State. Uh, I think that, um, you know, Ukraine... As it would it has already suffered an extraordinary amount, an extraordinary loss, and I have a great deal of sympathy for for the Ukrainians uh, and want to see them emerge from this conflict uh, prosperous, free, and integrated into Europe. Now, in my mind, uh, if if their their eastern boundary, if the cost of of peace for them is that uh, they do not retake all of the territory that they have lost to Russia since 2014. That may be a cost that, sadly, uh, they have to pay. I think that Ukraine can survive, in other words, this conflict without retaking all of the territory that it has lost to Russia. And that's where I would differ from what I understand to be the position of the U.S. Secretary of State. But obviously, if they lose Zaporizhia and the power plant there, the Europe's largest, that's what, between 10 and 20 percent of Ukraine's electricity and Kherson is so close to Odessa. That's where the they're suffering the most casualties because the Russians are dug in there. Is there any any territorial gains that they could make before accepting that kind of compromise? I mean, obviously, many people hope that they will. the The question is, the problem is, is that now that Putin has has raised the stakes so high that the costs of retaking that territory are 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 potentially um, extremely high for the whole world. And I, I don't like that fact, um, but it is it is the situation that we find ourselves in now. So ideally, yes, they would recover all of their territory. And at a minimum, some of these uh, economically important uh, pieces of territory that you just mentioned. Um, alternatively, uh, and in any case, they're going to need an enormous amount of support from Europe. And I think that the 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 level of sympathy for the Ukrainians in Europe right now is so high that they can expect to have uh, a great deal of support, not just today, but also as we look ahead uh, to the future uh, for their economic re reconstruction and integration into Europe, which ultimately is what will really uh, make them make them victorious. Imagine Ukraine as a prosperous democratic country uh, right there on Russia's border. That would be a, a major blow. I think, to, to, to Mr. Putin 
uh, and one that we should be uh, at this point uh, focused on trying to achieve. Well, Christopher Shivers, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And I've been speaking with Christopher Shivers, who's a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, with more than two decades of experience working on U.S. foreign policy and national security challenges. He previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as the U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. And he has an article at The Guardian, Yes, Putin Might Use Nuclear Weapons, We Need to Plan for Scenarios. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the hideous crimes against civilians, in particular children, that are being unearthed in Ukraine with the UN Human Rights Council holding the Russian military responsible. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aram Shabanian, who is an open-source information gathering manager at New Lines magazine. He recently taught in nonproliferation and terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies in Monterey, where his research focuses on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And he has a report at New Lines Magazine, an independent legal analysis of the Russian Federation's breaches of the Genocide Convention in Ukraine and the duty to prevent. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aram Shabanian. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And we're learning some horrible atrocities were committed in uh, Isium, in this field of graves in the forest, about 440 graves. They found the children murdered, but they've also found, and raped too, but they've also found men who have been castrated and their genitals mutilated. So in terms of the report you did, on the scale of horrible stuff that's happened uh, in Rwanda and other countries, how would you rate what's going on in Ukraine? Well, I mean, of course, you know, with the caveat being that I don't like to rate uh, atrocity crimes based on like which one's more severe, right? But but the atrocity crimes that we've seen in other genocides in recent years, this dehumanization and this desire to cause pain and suffering to the opponent, oppo- opponents is very, very real in Ukraine right now. Um, and it goes beyond the atrocity crimes themselves. It's the rhetoric behind it as well. The the constant radio broadcasts and television broadcasts about how Ukrainians are all Nazis, about how Ukrainianism is, is an aberration in history, things like that. That sounds a lot like what genocidaires the world over use to to justify what they're doing. Um, And so not just the rhetoric, but the acts themselves are very reminiscent of things like Rwanda or Darfur or honestly, in some cases, the Holocaust. So in terms of the Russian military itself, though, it's, it's obviously performing poorly. But what explains this brutality and this criminality that's been going on in in occupied areas they routinely steal beat up people rape women and behave in the most appalling manner there's obviously a real serious problems with discipline the fact that they're uh, opening up the military to criminals etc now they're desperately going to pour in a bunch of of conscripts or reservists with barely any training 
So who do you hold responsible? Is it this a, a failure right across the board? I mean, Putin just fired the head of procurement and replaced him with this general uh, who's referred to as the butcher of Mariupol. Yeah, I mean, I would ultimately say that that blame for for heinous acts, you know, of course, lies with the person who perpetrates it. But beyond that, if you want to look at at the wider blame, right, the wider angle here, I would absolutely level blame against the the Russian government and against Vladimir Putin and against the people who have have regurgitated propaganda, honestly, since since the Second World War. Um, and and that's part of what we're seeing here is that. In World War II, as Soviet forces advanced across Europe against the Nazis, the Nazis had committed some pretty heinous, brutal acts against the Soviet people and against people they had conquered. So the idea was to do it back to them, right? So a lot of the Red Army atrocities that we saw carried out in Eastern Europe, these rapes, these massacres, tortures, things like that, weren't just not punished. They were tacitly condoned by leadership, and they've never really been apologized for, right? Whereas a lot of other countries can say – Things happen in war, bad things happen in war, and we're sorry about what happened. Since 1945, the message out of Russia and out of the Soviet Union has been we won the war, we were righteous, they were the bad guys, and anything we did to, to get that final victory was justified because they were Nazis. And then when you see the rhetoric has turned that all Ukrainians are Nazis, Ukraine is a Nazi country, Nazi, 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 right, that justifies the same kind of treatment. If we treat Nazis this way, if we rape Nazis, if we kill them, then – and Ukrainians are Nazis, then we rape Ukrainians is kind of how it's transitioned. And so it's the political leadership. It's the folks in media in Russia who regurgitate what the political leadership tells them to unquestioningly, and they do it out of fear sometimes, but that doesn't I, – I don't buy that. And then, of course, it's the individual soldiers who commit these acts as well. You know, They do have some responsibility too. So let's talk about these nationalists and military bloggers who seem to have a big influence on Putin. It's the one area of uh, censorship that he's has not policed, and they've had a pretty free reign. And the theory is, or the concern is, that maybe they're driving uh, Putin into more desperate measures because they're making the arguments on Russian media, and it's reflected on Russian media, that somehow... The Russian army is fighting with one hand tied behind its back and they have to take the gloves off. Yeah, and I mean I think that you know you see that in any kind of a strongman situation or any kind of an authoritarian situation. You know, we we saw that uh, with the American war on terror. We saw that there was a lot of rhetoric, especially after 9-11, of people saying we need to take the gloves off. You know, uh, Donald Trump famously said we need to take the gloves off with regards to ISIS. Um, and so you get a lot of that that nationalistic rhetoric from folks who are inclined to believe it. Um, and the problem is that as more and more people alienate themselves and, and move themselves away from Putin's orbit, as more and more people are seen by him to be untrustworthy, these are the voices he's going to increasingly surround himself by, these yes-men and, and people who will tell him what he needs to hear, what they think he wants to hear. Um, and I think they think he wants to hear the most nationalistic, fired-up, violent rhetoric imaginable, and so they give him that, and it's kind of a feedback loop. Um, yeah. So in terms of the open source information gathering that you do on Ukraine, I heard some audio of Russian soldiers calling their girlfriends and wives that have been intercepted by the SBU, the Ukrainian Intelligence Service, and it's quite heartbreaking to listen to what they were saying about 
how they'd been abandoned by their leaders, and one of them was was badly wounded, and couldn't get any um, help from a hospital or a field hospital or anything, and was saying that they just they don't care about us. They just don't care. How much is that affecting the morale, do you think? I mean, the idea of... You can see that these young men are trying to get out of the country, you know, in Finland and, and in, uh, in the south and in the stands and also in Georgia. Cars are backed up for miles. They must know, surely, that things are not going well and they're just going to be thrown in as cannon fodder. I mean, I'm assuming that's why they're resisting and, and getting out of town. So is there a crack in Putin's propaganda? I know most of the people in the country believe where they don't have any alternative sources, they believe state TV. But I'm getting the impression now that more and more Russians are starting to question this war. Yeah, and I think the problem that we run into with that is that we do see people questioning the war, and we do see people protesting the war, and a lot of them are are taking the opportunity to do so now because they haven't felt like before they had an opportunity to do so, like it's now or never, right? But there's also a lot of people who um, who are against the war because it's going poorly, not because they're against the war. And there's a distinction to be made there, right? Because on the one hand, they might dislike Putin because his tactics have been poor, but they don't necessarily dislike him for the rhetoric. They don't dislike him for the the actions he's taken. He, they dislike him for the way the actions have been have been taken, not for the actions themselves, I guess, if that makes sense. Well, there, there are some theories coming out of the bombing and death of Dugin's daughter. And, of course, it's hard to prove anything in, in Russia because it's a mafia security state. But nevertheless, the theories are that maybe this was the military behind it just to sort of rein in these nationalists who are putting them in an awkward position, having to, forcing them to deliver on stuff that they can't deliver on. When you say that... They don't necessarily dislike Putin. They just dislike his tactics. Are they driving him into these more desperate moves that he's now uh, involved in, particularly, you know, culminating in threatening to use nuclear weapons? I think absolutely, yeah. And I think that maybe they don't mean to do that. Maybe that's not their intent. But, I mean, as any of us have, have ever experienced when we're under attack from our social group or if you're getting people being mean to you on Twitter or whatever. If there's enough people that are against you, you kind of go into this fight or flight mode, into this very defensive mode. And I think that for a lot of political leaders that happens where they see anybody who criticizes what they're doing is automatically an enemy who's always been a backstabber and they've always been against me. So screw what they have to say, right? I want to listen to people who support me and say the things that sound familiar and comforting to me, especially as things start to fall apart and especially as the war starts to go bad for the Russians. Um, and I hate to make the analogy back to back to Nazi Germany again because I feel like it's overdone these days. But but it is quite similar to the to you know Hitler in the bunker not listening to his generals as they tell him the war is lost. It's it's a similar thing. It's he's not listening to the generals and he's not listening to people around him. And anybody who tells him something that runs counter to what he believes or what he thinks is the truth is going to be seen as a bad guy or an outsider. And what about the theories expressed by some Russian analysts? that it may be hard for people to believe that Putin is actually a moderating figure in the context of the pantheon of far-right people in Russia, and particularly the military bloggers and the nationalists. Is that possible that he actually is trying to moderate, but he's being pushed by them? Or is he just, as you described, like Hitler or 
or actually when you were just making that description, I thought of Donald Trump. Right. That's the other one. Donald Trump's the other one. And I between him and Hitler, they're both very overdone examples. And so I feel bad doing it. But, you know, um, it, it, it bears it bears being made. The point bears being made. Um, and I, so I think that in terms of whether or not Putin is being pushed by more extreme folks around him, I mean, there's definitely some people around him who are going to be farther, harder line and, and more nationalistic than him. But I think that's also he chooses his friends, especially after how many years he's been in power. So anybody around him who, who's very nationalistic and, and extremist is probably in that position because Putin put them in that position. And so he's at least in some light, he at least in some way agrees with that mentality, agrees with that rhetoric. Um, and so it's the distinction, the, the, the distincting line is, or the dividing line is kind of hard to spot at times, um, especially as things get worse for the Russian military. And, and it's hard to distinguish between somebody who's panicking because of battlefield losses and somebody who's taking the mask off after all these years, really. So let's talk a little bit about the battlefield losses. And uh, obviously, the Russians got routed around Kharkiv, but there have been incremental, slow, and probably very costly battles for the Ukrainians around Kherson. And some of the international intelligence analysts uh, watching the war like the Brits and the U.S., I guess it's, again, probably based on intercepts. I'm hearing that the Russian commanders in Kherson are trying to find ways to retreat or to get out because they're largely surrounded, except for, you know, temporary pontoon bridges that the Ukrainians routinely blow up, and that Putin is refusing. Again, it's a little bit like Hitler uh, in World War II. Is that what you're hearing? That is what I'm hearing, yeah. Um and especially with the with the offensive in the south, it, it, it was quite evident early on that that offensive wasn't all the Ukrainians had in store, that Kherson was not going to be the main thrust, that Kharkiv might be the thrust. We didn't know for sure where the thrust would come. But I was looking at Kherson and thinking to myself, you know, if I'm the Ukrainians, I'm not going to, first of all, commit to a big battle where everybody thinks I'm going to be. I'm not going to bring the world media along with me. Um, and I'm not going to make a strike at Kherson unless I know pretty sure where the Russian forces are. Right. And so when when the Russian forces started to bog the Ukrainians down near Kherson, when things started to kind of slow with the offensive, with the counteroffensive, and then we saw the counteroffensive pick up in Kharkiv, uh, it, it was it was it was pretty uh, evident that that was going to happen, um, because the Russians had moved their forces from the north to the south. They had started reinforcing their forces near Kherson. Um, and that's very difficult for them to do right now between the railway sabotage and the Ukrainians using long-range rocket artillery systems like HIMARS. It's difficult to stage equipment and supplies, and it's also difficult to move around on bridges and roadways. And so the Russian army is quite sluggish and bogged down from a technical perspective. But then we also have to factor in the Putin, uh, the Putin factor, which is he has – put his cronies in the military for the last 20 years, there's a lot of institutional rot there. It's still a potent military. And I think that a lot of people are making a mistake in thinking that the Russian military is defeated. They're by no means defeated. And if you end up where they think you're going to be on the battlefield, you're going to get obliterated. The idea is that the Ukrainians have to keep shifting the battlefield and shifting things around the Russians to keep them on their toes. And I think that's what we've seen them doing pretty effectively. So do you think that they are in a position now where they could get territorial gains. And, of course, they're doing their referendum annexing Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. Would that be sufficient? I mean, maybe lose Kherson itself, 
if this battle goes better for the Ukrainians. But is that a possible beginning of an end? Putin keeps saying he's he's going to go on to the bitter end. But, um, I mean, I'm asking basically, is there any chance of any kind of peace deal? Obviously, in the early days, the Turks were trying to broker a deal. And there's a lot of Russian propaganda suggesting that, that the British and the uh, Americans forced Zelensky's hand, which is absolutely nonsense. Zelensky had, if he had he accepted that deal that the Russians are offering is via the Turks, the Ukrainian people would have kicked him out the next day. So they're not going to take a deal unless it's really the only way that they can stop this terrible war. Do you see any possibility from the open source work that you're doing that there could be any kind of deal here short of of Putin's threats to use a tactical nuclear weapon? No, um, I, I don't. I think that this war will continue until the Ukrainians either recapture every square inch of their territory um, or until something catastrophic happens. And as you've alluded to, Putin has, or as you've mentioned, Putin has has alluded to the use of, of nuclear weapons on, on a number of occasions. Um, and I think that we're reaching a point now where, where the likelihood of that has increased um, more than I would have ever wanted it to be in my life. I think that uh, it would be safe to say that we're at the closest point of nuclear tension since 1983, um, and I think that the idea that Putin uses a small nuclear weapon, a tactical nuclear weapon against the Ukrainian forces deployed in the field as a way to try to shock the Ukrainian military uh, is not as far-fetched as some might think. But just in closing, when you say the Ukrainians won't stop until they kick the Russians out of all the territory that they've gained, that's not possible, is it? I mean, they're doing okay, but they're not going to get them out of everywhere, and particularly uh, Crimea. They might. Um, I think when the Russian military takes enough losses, they're going to retreat the way that they have uh, in in multiple places in Ukraine, around Sumy, around Kiev, and around Kharkiv. Uh, you've seen the Russian army not necessarily fighting a withdrawal, but just kind of fleeing when when things break. And so I think we're going to see that near Kherson next. And uh, and then from there, it'll just be the separatist areas that were captured in 2014, right? Luhansk, Donetsk, and Crimea. Now, whether or not the Ukrainians can push the Russians out of those areas, that's that's the next question. Whether or not that'll be the red line for the Russians in terms of nuclear weapons, that's another question too. But right now, it looks like the Ukrainians might have the ability to do so, yes. They look like they're taking very real, realistic steps toward doing so, at least, uh, primarily in Crimea. Well, Aram Shabanian, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate your insight. Yeah, glad to be here. Glad to, glad to chat. And again, I've been speaking with Aram Shabanian, who is the Open Source Information Gathering Manager at New Lines Magazine. He recently taught in Non-Proliferation and Terrorism Studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies in Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And he has a new report at New Lines Magazine, an independent legal analysis of the Russian Federation's breaches of the Genocide Convention in Ukraine and the duty to prevent. We can take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the possibility that a revolution is underway in Iran that could topple the corrupt and hypocritical clerical regime of Ayatollahs who are essentially an economic mafia using religious piety as a weapon of repression. Mother's heart, soul 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Roya Hakakian, who's an Iranian-American poet, journalist, writer, and television producer of programs like 60 Minutes. Her books include Journey from the Land of No, A Beginner's Guide to America for an Immigrant and the Curious, and Assassins of the Turquoise Palace, a nonfiction account of the Mykonos restaurant assassinations of Iranian opposition leaders in Berlin. And she was a founding member of the Iranian Human Rights Documentation Center and serves on the board of Refugees International and teaches writing at Yale. And she has an article at The Atlantic, The Bonfire of the Headscarves. Welcome to Background Briefing, Roya Hakakian. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, we've seen over the years uh, demonstrations in Iran of... uh, people setting fires to effigies of Uncle Sam and the chant of death to America. But now it's a different chant and and a different uh, fire. They're setting uh, headscarves on fire and chanting death to Hamani, Iran's supreme leader. So it's reaching a critical mass, is it not? I believe they're in the midst of religious holidays at the moment, which end on Tuesday. And uh, is there a possibility on Tuesday that this, what seems like a revolution, could expand with truck drivers, uh, unions, workers joining in the protests? Do you see this thing growing or will the regime, as, as they have promised, be able to extinguish this latest outburst? I, the good news is that I don't see it going anywhere. I um, I mean, what can they possibly do in order to pacify uh, all these people who have come out? Um, and it's the widest swath of population that has ever participated in uh, street demonstrations in Iran. You know, in 2009, there were a lot of youth. There were younger university students who had invested heavily in the cause of the election. And they were really disillusioned when it proved to have been rigged. But that didn't include necessarily the poor, the elderly, the you know uh, rural people. This time it's really different. Everybody old and young, rich and poor, urban and rural, uh, everybody's out there and they all um, are demanding a common thing, which is fundamentally freedom. So, you know, a few years ago, um, after the prices of gas, for instance, had been raised, people came out and, um, you know, what initiated that protest was, um, you know, the high prices. This time it's different. It's, It's not high prices. It's not shortage of water. It's those very fundamental pillars of, Um, any democratic society that they're demanding. And that is why I think it cannot possibly go anywhere. You know, they they will crack down, they will arrest as many people as their prisons have room for. But ultimately, if you're not going to give them freedom, um, they will come back. So I don't see an end to this one way or another. But is there a possibility that the police will be exhausted and that the military will crack. I mean, already, uh, as you point out in your article at The Atlantic, the bonfire of the headscarves, Roy Hakakian, celebrities and sports figures in Iran are now calling on the army to intervene on the people's behalf. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that's precisely what happened uh, in 1979. Basically, the army abandoned uh, the former regime, the Shah of Iran, and that's how uh, that regime collapsed. And this is what everybody's hoping can happen this time around, that, um, you know, between the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is sort of this parallel military um, uh, institution that exists, and the traditional army of Iran, uh, the traditional army uh, will walk away and and will refuse to, uh, you know, point their guns at um, demonstrators on the streets. The other thing is that, you know, these people aren't um, the people who were out on the streets in 2009 saying, you know, we want you know, a peaceful demonstration. They uh, have changed. They are uh, beating up <laughs> the the riot police. They have become far more aggressive. They um, beat one of them so badly that um, he fell into coma and I think he died um, a few hours ago. So um, I think they um, aren't, uh, what they were, um, in a sense, you know, an unprepared group of people on the streets. They're determined, they're angry, and they're prepared to fight, uh, if that means even with their bare hands. And as I mentioned, on a Tuesday, when the religious holidays are over, there's a possibility of unions and workers joining in the strike or creating mm -hmm. a, a national strike. And mm -hmm. that would definitely... Uh, add paralysis to the capacity of the police, the besieged, the pastoran, the repressive mechanisms that this regime has, they're already pretty stretched thin, are they not? Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, there's, there's divisions and fissures um, within them. Um, some of these um, groups, you know, demonstra demonstrators um, have organized groups within their own neighborhoods, and they have identified who are the besieges and you know the revolutionary guard members who are um, working as riot police so they're going to you know home to home in their neighborhoods speaking to them and to their parents and they're warning them saying we're giving you a chance not to do what you've been doing but if you do continue to um, to crack down if you do continue to uh, beat us up in the streets, we will come back and we know where you live. So so the game has vastly changed. And this is not sort of your grandmother's demonstrators anymore. Another um, thing is that, yes, you're correct. I think the next phase is, um, is for the strikes to begin to kick in. And I have seen uh, several posts by various university professors and university students saying, we will not go to school. We will, you know, what is there to learn and what is there to teach? Um, the best thing we can do is to stay home, um, not even attend virtually. Um, so, and, and that's precisely, again, um, uh, a lesson out of the playbook of 1979. Um, so everyone is hoping uh, that, you know, the demonstrators can be supported now by the next phase of events, which will be for the strikes to kick in. And of course, I think the international community has a huge role to play um, um, and Europe hasn't really stepped up yet. So let's hope that that can happen too. 
Well, indeed, there are demonstrations in Paris against Macron for shaking hands with President Raisi at the United Nations, and Iranian exiles in, in France are furious. But let's talk about the regime itself in terms of what kind of support it has. Maybe 10% of the country, I'm not sure what the figures are, but Raisi, of course, the president, like all Iranian presidents, are essentially front men. He happens to be a pretty noxious repressive person, but the the real power is apparently the country is actually being run by uh, Mushtaba Khamenei, the son of the supreme leader, who apparently has suffers from bouts of depression and uh, a few years ago had prostate cancer surgery. Nobody quite knows about the state of his health, but Mushtaba, the son, is a pretty noxious figure too. He's a top mm-hmm. figure in the in the IRGC, is he not? In the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think part of what has made it difficult um, for, you know, Westerners to try to figure out this cast of characters is that um, they let uh, their facade get in the way. In other words, you know, they they are cloaked in turbans and um, robes, clerical robes. And, you know, Westerners look at that and say, oh, you know, this isn't something we know. Um but what I have been saying for years and years is that, yes, this is something, you know, they just dress differently. This is a mafia group. They they basically hold um, the uh, Iran's economy in their hand. And the, the reason they don't want to um, go from power is because they will lose their economic interests. They um, hold the country hostage and they send their own children and their own family um, to Europe and uh, to North America, where they live lavish lives. In fact, one of the slogans um, and one of the confrontations of the demonstrators um, with these, you know, with the thugs on the streets often boils down to, uh, well, you beat me up, you beat us up, but your own kids are on the beaches um, in California. And that is so... um, so true. I mean, uh, the irony is that the very people, including Mary Eptekar, who was the spokesperson for the hostage takers in 1979, the woman who then rose to the position of uh, vice president um, or vice president of women's affairs in Iran, um, her son lives in Beverly Hills uh, in a lavish mansion. And, and so I think that one of the ways in which we need to kind of um, develop a different understanding of who this regime is and what they're made of is to kind of get over um, the facade that they put on. This is not about religion. It's not about Islam. Maybe it was in 1979 at this particular moment. It's primarily about an economic interest. They are uh, an economic mafia. They act like an economic mafia, and um, and the nation has been impoverished, and and also has uh, lost all of its freedoms um, that a previous generation rose uh, to gain. So um, whoever comes out to the streets has everything to gain and nothing to lose. So, Roy Hakakian, pervasively, then the Iranian people understand that this clerical regime are basically a bunch of parasites and of course 
they've confiscated all of the mansions in North Tehran and live the high life, as you pointed out, and they're mm-hmm. extraordinary hypocrites and a mafia. And of mm-hmm. course, not unlike Putin's mafia. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately... No, they're oligarchs. We, we, they're Iranian oligarchs uh, that dress like, you know, Shiite clerics, you know, uh-huh. in Iran. But they, when they come out, uh, you know, in Europe, um, they know how to put on bikinis and go to nightclubs. So, and the people get it, right? There's no mystery about this. In, no, in... The, the, in fact, the only people who, um, who know this to be truth uh, are the Iranians inside the country. And the only people who are still kind of, you know, wondering, you know, how to not offend Muslims or, you know, be respectful to their traditions and all that. They're just, uh, you know, naive Westerners who keep on thinking this is about religion. This is about Islam. This is about tradition. It's about none of that. It's it's a, a mafia group uh, with huge economic interests and a lot of hypocrisy. So, obviously, in 2009, they cracked down brutally. And, in fact, one of the aspects of this regime, and it's surprising that Westerners are deluded uh, because the regime has crossed the line in terms of, and you wrote about it in your book, Assassins in the Turquoise Palace, that they are totally free to go out and kill people in various Western uh, capitals. And more just recently, in last year, an Iranian intelligence officer and three members of, of Iran's intelligence network were charged in federal court in Brooklyn for trying to kill an Iranian uh, dissident. Alina Jad, do you know her at all? Yes, 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 yeah, I do. That's true. I mean... Um... Another thing that I think is very important for us as Americans to understand is um, the time for us to say, you know, this is an Iranian issue or this is a Ukrainian issue has passed, Um, in part because the evil powers in the world are banding together. Iran is selling drones to Russia. Um, Russia rushed to the help of Iran in Syria. And if we don't do the same, uh, if we don't understand that um, whatever we don't take care of, whatever we refuse to, um, whatever you know, global problems of the magnitude of Iran, let's say at the moment, we don't um, participate in kind of resolving, will come back to haunt us. And I go back to the issue of you know, the FEI issue last year and the, uh, up, the abduction story of Masih Alinejad, because, um, it, you know, the moment you allow Iran to continue to operate uh, with an open hand, as, you know, it used to in the early years after the revolution, um, it, it gathers momentum. The moment you don't confront Iran in Syria, um, the moment you... Uh, you know, try to appease them, Uh, they gather momentum. And one of the things that has been very concerning for me as an American is that, um, you know, the story that leaked from last year, um, the story of the abduction of Ali Nijad, shows that they have created a footprint in the United States. And when I came here as a refugee 30 plus years ago, they didn't exist, that it was beyond their wildest imagination that they could ever conduct an operation in America. So the fact that they were able to even come up with that 
um, failed plot means that they have their agents here, that they have uh, the capability to carry out um, operations. And that is in part on us, on the fact that um, we have thought that, you know, if it's happening over there, um, it has nothing to do with us. Well, it does, you know, uh, un unlike Las Vegas, um, whatever happens in Tehran doesn't stay in Tehran. And, and it affects us all the way here, too. So just in closing, Roy Hakakian, what I find particularly dangerous about theocracies and even a fraudulent one like this one, which you, which you made clear is completely hypocritical, but nevertheless, they operate with religious zeal, mm -hmm. which sanctions any kind of lawlessness and brutality and illegality. It's similar to the anti-abortion zealots who shoot abortion doctors. They mm -hmm. have the sanction of re religious uh, sanctity. And that, that, I think, makes them more dangerous than just about anybody else on the planet. I, I agree with you entirely. And I think that was very true, um, particularly in the first 10 years of after the Iranian Revolution, you know, from 1979 to 1989, when, you know, a year after Khomeini died. Um, but I think what has happened, at least internally inside Iran, is that people can see that, that the ruling class uh, preaches in one way and acts in another. So they preach piety, they, they preach Islam, they preach um, um, you know, all sorts of virtuous things, but their own children and their own families um, have... Uh, benefited financially, and they, you know, they take their hijabs off. Um, they, you know, and they uh, gallivant around, you know, countries in Europe and live differently. If that information somehow hadn't made it across, um, you know, from the Atlantic insider on, if if people still were in the dark about who they are and how they're living, um, then I I'd say what you're saying is true. Um, but but the fact is. Um, that it's become incredibly clear, partially thanks to social media, to people that whatever it is that they're preaching, they're not abiding by, at least their children aren't. And that really um, completely takes away their credibility um, before the eyes of the people. Well, Roy Hakakian, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I'm speaking with Roy Hakakian, who's an Iranian-American poet, journalist, writer, and television producer for programs like 60 Minutes. Her books include Journey from the Land of No, A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious, and Assassins of the Turquoise Palace, a nonfiction account of the Mykonos restaurant assassination of Iranian opposition leaders in Berlin. And she was a founding member of the Iranian Human Rights Documentation Center and serves on the board of Refugees International and teaches writing at Yale. And she has an article at The Atlantic, The Bonfire of the Headscarves. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice saying it something to me One more light goes out in the